Okay, good evening, everyone. Our topic for tonight on the history of Jerusalem is the post-destruction era. We're going to cover tonight from the year 70 through the Islamic conquest and the building of the major Islamic shrines on the top of the Temple Mount. So, uh, at the end of the previous session, I mentioned that the first thousand years of Jewish history in Jerusalem really is Jewish history in its totality, in the sense that Jerusalem is the central focus of our people's existence, and our ups and downs are determined by the fate of the holy city. When it is in ruins, it's because we're an exiled people. When it's back in business, times are good. But that after the year 70, the history of Jerusalem is not equivalent to the history of the Jewish people. It's just the history of some backwater city that was once a famous and holy place and is still revered with this pious expectation for an eventual return. But in the flesh or in the real world, it's uh, a, a forgotten place, maybe becoming more important to other faith groups because they control it and they can put a population there. And as for a Jewish presence, it'll be hit and miss. Sometimes it's allowed, sometimes it's forbidden. Jews will get as close as they can, but only a handful. So the history of Jerusalem is not the broader Jewish history. Okay, well, Jerusalem was not totally deserted after the destruction of the year 70. It was bad, it was was devastating, but there were still people living in the city. Who was there? Well, it was the headquarters of the 10th Roman Legion, Uh, based out of the present-day Armenian quarter around the three towers of Herod's citadel. Who who else settled there aside from active-duty Roman soldiers? Well, demobilized soldiers, which was a common theme throughout the Eastern Roman Empire, that where where did uh, soldiers whose career in the military came to an end, where did they end up settling? Basically, wherever they left off. They didn't go back home to some distant province. They settled down right then and there. So there were um, veterans of the Roman military of Syrian and Greek extraction who settled down in Jerusalem and its environs, and historically they hated Jews. So uh, this is not a good mix if you want to have a Jewish presence in the city. Technically speaking, Jews were not formally banned from the city of Jerusalem. Still, they were not allowed on the Temple Mount. This is a matter of great historical uh, controversy. The extent to which Jews were physically present in Jerusalem in the era between the year 70 and the year 132, uh, the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. Uh, I uh, wrote a few essays about this over the years, and some of you may have read uh, read those essays. I think one of them is in my book, uh, on the last Paschal Lamb, Parshat Bo. the last Paschal Lamb, well, when was it? Was it when the temple, the year the temple was destroyed, or was it at some later time in the 80s, 90s, 100s, 110s, 120s? And the answer is from the Talmud, there's anecdotal evidence of Paschal Lamb services, Korban Pesach, after the Korban, after the destruction. According to what I think is a careful and close reading of the text, some of these stories may be just legendary and apocryphal, but there's a kernel of historical truth. Jews probably did go on Har Habayit, not between 70 and 95, when the Flavian dynasty was still controlling Rome, but rather after that dynasty came to an end, probably in the days of Nerva or in the days of uh, Trajan, 
there were Jews who snuck up on the Temple Mount. There's a famous story in the Talmud of an Aramean who participated in the Korban Pesach despite being a goy. And he mocked uh, the rabbis of the diaspora saying, Aha, it says, that the heathen cannot partake of the Paschal lamb, and they give me the juiciest pieces of meat. And what happens? Rabbi Yehuda Bebeseira, who was living in Nisibius uh, up in the Turkey, said, well, did they give you the tail? And he, no, they didn't give me the tail. Oh, ask for the tail next time. So he asked for the tail next time. But what's, what's the story with the tail? It's not kosher. It's, it's the forbidden fat. So they investigated the guy. They found that he was a goy, and they killed him. So the the the, uh, the Maritz Chayes, one of the 19th century commentators, asked, well, "Why'd they kill him? Must be he was going to reveal the secret of their participation in the Paschal Lamb ritual without government permission, and they didn't want that to happen, so they killed him." All right, this whole story may be a legendary account that never happened, but because there's enough uh, little evidence here and there, I think there was something going on <laughs> during that 60-year span. Okay. Early Christians were for sure in Jerusalem, and we'll get to that shortly. So uh, while Jews were not officially banned from Jerusalem, they were technically banned from the Temple Mount, and if they tried to go there, it must have been under cover of darkness or without uh, you know, official permission. Instead, pilgrims mourned for the Temple next to the tomb of Zechariah in the Kidron Valley. Okay, it's a tourist attraction, the, the Kever Zechariah. Jewish Christians returned to Jerusalem not that long after the destruction and they began honoring the upper room. What is the upper room? Where the Sinai was. Okay, so the upper room on Mount Zion, which was seen, was regarded as the, the room of the Last Supper. Okay. In 106, Trajan ordered the crucifixion of Simon, the overseer of the Jerusalem Christians, because like Jesus, he claimed descent from King David. That's a big no-no. Remember, uh, Jesus was killed for being the king of the Jews, not necessarily because he was a apikores or was violating the halacha, but rather as a political actor, he was claiming Davidic descent and he's going to be some uh, heroic figure to save the people from Roman oppression. So if the head of the Jewish Christians in the early days of the second century is also throwing around terms of, oh, I'm a Davidic descendant, that has political overtones. Well, off with your head. Okay, crucifixion. In 130... Hadrian visited Jerusalem. The Emperor Hadrian visited Jerusalem. And he decided to abolish the city down to its foundation and to erase its name from history. He would replace Jerusalem with Aelia Capitolina, named after his own family's name and the imperial god. Well, this is uh, not going to go over well with the Jews. And Jewish nationalism... huh? Well, not necessarily in Jerusalem itself, but Jews, Jews live in the southlands of Judea and also in the Galilee, but especially in Judea, the Darom. Nationalist fervor is building. Well, what could exacerbate that even more and spark a rebellion? Some bold move by the heathens against our holiest of cities. And to erase any vestiges of the past and to erase the name, and to make it a pagan polis, that's about as bad as it could possibly get. But more than that, they wanted to replace what was left of the Beis Hamikdash yeah. with, a, um, with a, um, a temple to Jupiter. Temple to Jupiter. Yeah, so. okay, so. Uh, yeah. How many people are you talking about? Four. Yeah. There are thousands and thousands of Jews living in, in, in Judea at that time. Mm-hmm. H- hundreds of thousands. 
What's the locus of, of the Jewish population in the Galilee? Okay, so the, Ga- the Galilee becomes the center of Jewish population after the failure of the Bar Kokhba War. Uh, before, it, bef- before? Not before. Oh. Before it was still uh, probably in the western regions and coastal area of Judea with a strong presence, a Jewish presence in the Galilee already at that time. Already for a hundred years there had been. But the the main body of, of the Jewish demographics moves northward after this failed rebellion. Okay. The Jews had other areas. Why did they go to Babylon? They didn't go to Babylon. Not yet. Why did the first 70 years they went to Babylon? That's the six centuries earlier. That's another, okay. Now, Hadrian builds a temple to Jupiter with a statue to Aphrodite on the very rock where Jesus was supposedly crucified. It was a deliberate attempt to deny the shrine to Jewish Christians. So here, the Temple of Jupiter is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre would eventually be. Hadrian plans a shrine on the Temple Mount featuring an equestrian statue of himself. Now remember, Caligula had tried that stunt 90 years earlier, and it didn't go over well for him. What Hadrian was trying to do was to eradicate Jerusalem's Jewishness. So that means suppressing Judaism and Jewish Christianity, which are both genres of the same uh, bigger religion, at least as far as he's concerned. So Bar Kokhba, Bar Kuzba, Bar Kuziba, the son of the star, the son of the lie. Uh, The history of the Bar Kokhba war we've discussed in prior classes. For our purposes now, I want to know one thing. During his rebellion, did the Jews take control of Jerusalem at any point in time? And the answer to that question is, we don't know. The evidence is mixed. There are coins found that say, for the liberation of Jerusalem, year one, year two, year three. However, we can't be certain whether that was based upon fact on the ground or was merely aspirational. If it was aspirational, it could have never come to pass. It could have been something they wanted, but never had the military might to, to accomplish. So these coins were found in the countryside, but none have ever been found in Jerusalem, which leads you to believe what? That it was aspirational and they never got there. They never got there. Okay. Although all the scholars will, will tell you, and if they did get there, they, they would have presumably tried to restart sacrificial worship. I speculate it never happened. Okay. Now, Hadrian won the war, although it was a tough battle, and he could not, after winning the war, proclaim to the Roman uh, uh, Senate that uh, all is well in the world. He could just claim victory. That was it. Um, He renamed the province Palestina. So not only was Jerusalem wiped off the map, but Judea was wiped off the map. And Palestina, Palestine, would remain the name in use uh, in the Western world, Ad Hayom Hazeh. Okay, now, Antoninus Pius relaxed some of the Hadrianic persecutions, but he also put his own statue on the Temple Mount, thereby emphasizing that the Jewish temple will not be rebuilt. Maybe Judaism as a religion will be allowed to survive, and circumcision will no longer be forbidden, and Torah study will not be forbidden. So all the, the, uh, the things that got Rabbi Akiva in trouble, or Bichanan ben Shradja, and all the ten martyrs, their willingness to take one for the team, to sacrifice for the cause, all that stuff will disappear, and Judaism will once again be a, basically a lawful religion. But what? But you're not going to Jerusalem. Okay. What's the story with Aelia Capitolina? The, you know, the, the, the city with, without Jews in it, how big is it? 
how relevant is it in the grand scheme of things? It was a very minor Roman colony of 10,000 inhabitants without walls and about two-fifths the size of the former uh, uh, city in all of its glory. It, it extended from about the Damascus Gate to the Gate of the Chain. So it's uh, like the northeastern uh, two-fifths of what had once been a big, much bigger city. Are you talking about the city of David now? No, the city of David was not really part of that uh, Ili Capitolina. City of David is further south. We're talking further north. Okay. Gradually, the 10th Legion moved away from Jerusalem. Why did the 10th Legion eventually move away? Because it was there to begin with, since Jews were a feisty bunch in the habit of rebelling, having rebelled in 66 to 70, having rebelled in 115 to 117, having rebelled in 132 to 135. But as the Jews lost their demographic strength and their residual potential for military uh, uh, adventurism, so there was no longer a need to keep a whole legion of the Roman army in a backwater of Jerusalem. If I'm not mistaken, in the 70, around 70, I don't remember yeah. the numbers, there were like two and a half legions uh-huh. that were... Um, yes, at the high point, two and a half were located in Eretz Israel because they were needed to suppress Jewish... Uh, yeah. But so, so, so they must have left really... They left pretty numbers. soon after that war, yes. Only the 10th was, was kept on. So the Jews were no longer a threat. They were merely an irritant. And because the 10th Legion moved away, the city became even more of a backwater because nobody's there. Who remains? Some pagan uh, uh, settlers? This is essentially a a dead town. Jerusalem had no natural industries other than the holiness industry. There's no business like like the religion business. Okay, but so the absence of the Legion meant that all you had left was the potential for a religion business which was in decline because the Jews are not there, the Christians are being persecuted, and a temple for Jupiter is not going to attract all that much attention. So pilgrimage by the Jews is something that never fully stops. It always exists, but they can't necessarily reach the rendezvous point. You can get close. How close? Mount of Olives, Mount Scopus, but not you know, the, the, the Harabite itself. Christian pilgrimage will begin in the 4th century, and we're going to talk about that shortly, Constantine's mother. So that will be what rescues Jerusalem from its backwater status and make it once again a hustling and bustling place. Okay, so in the year uh, 201, Emperor Caracalla visited Aelia Capitolina, and he also met Rabbi Yudah Hanasi that year. Um, in the Talmud, you have all sorts of stories of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi interacting with Antoninus, right? The, Anton- the Rabbi Antoninus stories. So who was this Antoninus? The scholars tried for a hundred years to figure out which, which member of the Anton- Antonine dynasty was this person. Most likely, if there's any kernel of historical truth to these stories, and they're mostly all just uh, agotic legends, Caracalla probably did meet Rabbi Yudha Nasi in, in the flesh, but not in Yerushalayim, in the Galilee. Okay, so thanks to Judah's imperial connections and some bribes, Jews were allowed to pray near the Temple Mount on Har Hazetim or in the Kidron Valley. The Talmud also speaks about Kahala Kadisha di Yerushalayim, the holy community of Jerusalem, which... Um, 
we don't know much about other than from rabbinic literature. And whenever you try to use rabbinic literature as a historical source, it's always a very tricky proposition. But I wrote an essay for Tishabov maybe four or five years ago about Kalakadish and Yerushalayim. If you have my old emails, you could read that old essay. I think it may be, no, it's not in my book. Um, and the, the, the Kalakadisha was really just like six people, seven people, eight people at first. They didn't even have a minion. Slowly they grew, but had to be inconspicuous. They lived on Mount Zion. They had a very tiny synagogue and they existed for about a hundred years from the late second century to the early, well, the early third century to the early fourth century. Jewish cemetery on Har Hazetim begins in earnest around this time. People want to be close to the you know, the place of, of action when the judgment day arrives. We'll spend a whole session on the history of the Mount of Olives later in the, in, the, in the course. Local Christians kept alive the tradition of the site of the crucifixion and of the resurrection, now buried under Hadrian's Temple of Jupiter. They would sneak inside and pray and scratch graffiti. So this is a, a, an ongoing theme in the history of Jerusalem. If you don't have the lawful right to go to your holy place, you'll go anyway but you'll go when no one's looking. And while you're there, you'll leave some kind of mark that you were there, um, which will be uncovered by archaeologists 1,500 years later. Okay. Well, for 12 years, between 260 and 272, the unwalled town of Aelia, a.k.a. Jerusalem, was not part of the Roman Empire. It rather fell to what other empire? Briefly existing empire. The Palmyrin Empire. And if you recall, I wrote an essay about Hanukkah, and I argued that Hanukkah was brought back to Eretz Yisrael as a viable holiday after having been dormant for like 200 years because of a desire to oust the Palmyrins and bring actually back the Romans. Rabbi Yochanan, uh, the Amora, uh, the was an advocate for Roman restoration because the Palmyrans were even worse uh, persecutors of the Jews. So the, uh, the relevance of Hanukkah there is that Hanukkah as a holiday makes no sense if the temple is destroyed. Hanukkah is about the, the, the rededication of a defiled temple. So like all these minor holidays of the second temple period that make sense if the temple is still standing and you've had a temporary respite against the, you know, the Seleucids or whomever, but if everything is lost, it's, it's a, it, with the countryside is devastated, there's no point to this holiday. So it was brought back as a way of uh, expressing a, an element of nationalism to oust a, an oppressive Palmyran regime. Okay, now let's go to Constantine. Constantine is the major player in tonight's discussion. He changes the history of the world and the history of Jerusalem with one decision. What decision is that? To accept the cross. Now, I want to be, uh, be very clear here. It is not his personal conversion to Christianity, which will not happen until his deathbed uh, in the 330s. It is acceptance of the sign of the cross as the sign of victory at the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 312, which leads to him becoming the, the, emperor, of, uh, United Roman, the emperor of the United Roman Empire. So uh, Constantine's mother, Helena, was an early convert to Christianity, and he was... You know, he adored his mother, he revered his mother, and wanted to make her happy. So he leads the empire towards Christendom, makes the religion legal, eventually converts himself, 
but never actually makes it the state religion. Christianity does not become the state religion of the Roman Empire until the 380s. It's a little, little realized fact of history. Okay, so at the Council of Nicaea in 325, by the way, what's the most important factor of the fact of the Council of Nicaea? It's when they establish what? When Easter will fall out, that it shouldn't coincide with Passover. It's a part of the, the fissure, the great schism between Judaism and Christianity is that we have different holiday calendars. Council of Nicaea 325. So at that council, the Bishop of Jerusalem showed up and called uh, to the emperor's attention the fact that Jerusalem is basically a backwater, nothing's going on, there are no Christian holy places, it's a a bush of a cherpa. So what can we do about it? Okay, so Constantine decides to create the new Jerusalem built over and against the old one so famous. So he decides he will put money and effort into making Jerusalem glorious once again, but in a Christian vein, not the Jewish way that it had been previously, or for that matter, the pagan way it had been under the pagan Roman emperors. So Helena secures carte blanche to embellish Christ's city, as she called it. She set off for Jerusalem, and her glory would be Constantine's penance for his biggest sins. What were Constantine's biggest sins? What's the biggest sin a person could commit? Kill. Who did he kill? Killed his wife and his own son. Uh, I'm not going to get into why or how. It was a sex scandal. The point is he killed his wife and his son, and it was, he was wrong to do so, and he recognized that they were innocent, but only too late. So he wants to do teshuva by building up a Christian Jerusalem. Helena arrives, and she's already in her 70s, which by then, those years was, uh, was an old-timer, but she had an abundance of energy. And she would become Jerusalem's most monumental builder and miraculously its most successful archaeologist. What will she find in Jerusalem? What is the ultimate Christian artifact? Cross. The true cross. Everybody got the true cross. Okay, good. Everybody got the true cross. Good. So Constantine ordered the destruction and removal of Hadrian's temple to be replaced by the most beautiful basilica in the world at the site of Jesus' tomb. Uh, Helena was determined to find the actual tomb, and she claimed she did. And what did she find there? The true cross. She built churches on the Mount of Olives and, at the tomb, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Um, Its splendor dominated Jerusalem. This is in the 330s. So its splendor dominated Jerusalem's sacred space, mocking the Temple Mount, in the sense that the Temple Mount was just a heap of rubble, and this is a big glorious edifice. She leveled the pagan shrines on Harabite and ordered filth be thrown there to show the failure of the Jewish God. The failure of the Jewish God. So this filth, this dump, this dung heap, you know, Sharash boat type, would continue to be the case on Harabite for the next 300 years. It's not until the Islamic conquest when Omar shows up and wants to see what's going on and he sees what happened, what a disgrace that the Christians made out of the, out of the Temple Mount. Okay. No, the Christian Christians, yeah. By 333, the pilgrim from, Bord- from Bordeaux, and if you, if you know your, your hist- historiography, the pilgrim from Bordeaux is the author of one of the very important tracts uh, of fourth century uh, Byzantine era writings that speaks of you know, his, his experience when he traveled from France all the way to the Middle East. So he found Alia to be a bustling Christian temple city. So it's busy. There's a lot of people now. It's not, it's not a dead backwater, and it's a temple city. Religion is the dominant industry. Empress Helena visited all the sites of Jesus' life 
and created a roadmap for, pil- for pilgrims to follow. They began flocking to Jerusalem to experience its special holiness. The name Holy Land emerges at this time. Because remember, in Judaism, is there such a name for the Holy Land? No, there's Eretz Yisrael. I mean, Eretz HaKodesh, that's a fake term that is used not at all in rabbinic literature and hardly at all even in modern times. Holy Land is a Christian concept. And the pilgrimage is a Christian concept. Do we find in, in, the, in the writings of Chazal uh, um, an idea that it's a zuchus, it's, a, it's a somehow virtuous to go to see historical sites? Yes or no? No. No, it's not. There's a there, okay. So so there's a, there's a there's a Mishnah at the end of Brachot that talks about if you go to certain sites where miracles happened for our ancestors, you make a bracha, or blessed is God that he uprooted idolatry from this place. But all the sites mentioned are not actually places that Jews visited. It's a laundry list of places that really nobody was going to and are a phantom. Pilgrimage is a goyesha concept. Okay, so aliyala regel, aliyala regel is the obligation to do a mitzvah, to do sacrificial worship at Hamakoma Sherifar Shemoshab, which is in a category by itself. That's not going to see a historical relic of the past because it's of, of, of antiquarian curiosity. That is a, a Gentile concept. Now, granted, I happen to like all that stuff. I'm an antiquarian by my nature, okay, and I'll happily take you to some old sites, but it's not an inherently Jewish concept. Okay, well. Uh, who said Jews have to go there? It's not necessarily the case that people went there, uh, you know, in antiquity. Uh, eventually, it becomes a tourist destination. Okay, so a small Jewish community which had existed on Mount Zion for over a century is now banned. Constantine says, get out of Jerusalem. You can only come back one day a year. What is that one day? Tishabov. You can come back on Tishabov to mourn the loss of the temple. In 351, an earthquake shook Jerusalem and led all the Christians to the, Holy, to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, seized with awe that the rapture, the, the end of time was, was upon them, that the apocalypse was now. Not like the movie Apocalypse Now, but like really Apocalypse Now. So the end is near. There was a rebellion in the Galilee, and it was crushed. But the thought of a rebuilt temple was on the minds of Jews. It was on the minds of Jews. So we get to Julia. Yeah. So what ever ha- I'm going back. But what ever happened to uh, Didn't that develop into something, you know? Like- so the, the, the fact that the sages gathered, the fact that the sages gathered at Yavne, and later gathered at Usha and other places in the Galilee, like Tiberia, Shvaram, Beit Sharim, Sipori. Uh, that's the rabbis doing rabbi things. But it has nothing to do with Yerushalayim. Did the rabbis have any expectation that there'd be a Jewish restoration of Jerusalem anytime soon? I'm sure some did. And those who were uh, admirers of Bar Kokhba might have believed it was happening in his time. But there were others who said that it will not happen anytime soon. 
Uh, Yochanan ben Torta mocked Rabbi Akiva for thinking that Bar Kokhba was a Mashiach and says that the grass will grow from your, from your grave long before any restoration of Zion happens. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, in the year 200, was asked whether Kohanim can drink wine. What's the logic of saying Kohanim can't drink wine? Because the temple could be rebuilt tomorrow, and it could be your Mishmar's turn to serve, and so you have to be ready on, you know, on alert to do the Avodat Beit HaMikdash. So what does Rabbi say? Well, you can drink wine. That the passage of time makes it seem un- un- unlikely to occur tomorrow or the day after the day after that. So yes, we believe in some you know, uh, long-term future restoration of Zion, but in the here and now, it ain't going to happen, so go drink your whiskey. You know, that, that sort of thing. I remember being told not to buy Mauser for uh, Petition. Yeah, uh, because because by next year, right. the base Amigdash should be back. Uh, like Ketanin, children below Bar Mitzvah should not fast in the commemorative fast days, because by the time they hit Bar Mitzvah, the Mashiach will be here. Okay? Now, uh, 362, Julian the Apostate. So, Maybe three, four years ago, we had a whole session on Julian the Apostate. I went through the story in great detail. For our purposes, now I want to focus on the Jerusalem aspect of things. So on July 19th, 362, Emperor Julian asked the Jews why they don't sacrifice. They answered, we aren't allowed to. If you restore our temple and and our altar, our Mizbeach, then we could do it. So his reply was, I shall endeavor with the utmost zeal to set up a temple to the Most High God. Julian regarded the Tetragrammaton, the Jewish, the Hebrew deity, as equivalent to Zeus. Of course, we would think that's absurd. That's a sacrilegious, but that's what he thought. And he was happy, the polytheist in him, the pagan in him, was happy to give the Jews their God and their temple too. So he Jews poured in to Jerusalem from all over the empire, and they probably <laughs> built a provisional synagogue on Harabayit called the House of King Hezekiah, Beit HaMelech Hizkiyahu, Julian's rebuilding of the temple was not just a mark of tolerance. This is an important idea. We shouldn't think that he's just doing this because he's a nice guy who's tolerant of the Jews. Rather, it's a nullification of Christian claims to have inherited the true Israel. So supersessionism, the notion that biological Israel has been replaced by the church, the universal church, which is the new Israel, Julian, ever the polytheist, says, no, it's not true. And I'm going to prove it's not true by bringing back biological Israel and its temple. This is a reversal of the prophecies of Daniel and of Jesus that the temple would fall. And a sign that he was serious in overturning his uncle's work. His uncle was Constantine. Um, Actually, his uncle was Constantius. But uh, um, he wanted to overturn all that had been done in the previous 50 years to take the, the empire in a Christian direction. So the, if, if, you, if you claim that the first effort was in Bar Kokhba's time, and this, this is the second effort, the third effort will be in the year 614, which we'll get to in about 10 minutes. Okay. What so, effort if he never did it? Uh, well, no, no, there, there, was, there was work done. So another reason for Julian to support the building up of a Jewish presence in Jerusalem was realpolitik. He wanted to win over Babylonian Jewish support during his planned war with Persia, with the, uh, the Sassanid Empire. And he figured 
the Jews will love me, including the Persian, Iraqi, Persian, Babylonian Jews, if I am the hero who rebuilds their temple. Okay, fine. Building materials were stored in the stable of Solomon, you know, the, the underground stable of Solomon. They, they removed the former building and cleared away the foundation. But then there was an earthquake. A lot of earthquakes around that, that era. May 27th, the year 363, and the building materials caught fire. The Christians delighted in this wonderful phenomenon, uh, though they probably helped it along with some arson. Uh, they, there was an earthquake, but they took advantage of the earthquake to light a fire to destroy whatever efforts had been underway and all the building materials. Okay, so what happens now? Do you start over? I mean, it was, uh, uh, time and, and effort and money was lost, but can you build the temple? So Julian is not around. He's busy fighting the Persians. So Alypius, uh, who was his uh, governor on the scene, decided to halt the work on Jerusalem until Julian came back. Problem is, Julian never came back. He was killed in battle by a Christian archer uh, and his successor expelled the Jews from Jerusalem. So easy come, easy go. Uh, this was like a, a blip on the radar, uh, a moment where things looked good, but it didn't last very long. It wasn't pushing it. Okay. In the late fourth century, Jerome left Rome after a sex scandal with his mistress, uh, uh, Paulina, and they go to Jerusalem. But he didn't like Jerusalem because he thought it was a theme park of religious passion and sensory excitement with too many inappropriate sexual opportunities. And he had to get out of there. His, uh, his Yetzirah was getting the better of him. So he settled in sleepy Beit Lechem instead. And I can attest to the fact that Beit Lechem to this very day is sleepy. I was just there a few months ago. There's nothing doing there. Okay. Well, Jerome doesn't like Jerusalem because um, there's, there's too much excitement, too much, uh, he would say, his, his, he was a scholar, and he was writing a translation of the Bible from the Greek into the Latin, the Vulgate. And he didn't want to be distracted with the shtusim of Yerushalayim. Can you imagine that? People go to Yerushalayim for, for, the, for the Kedusha, to get away from the shtusim of Tel Aviv or New York. But he left the Shtusim of Yerushalayim to go to Beit Lechem. Okay. Now, imperial patronage, monumental building, and a stream of pilgrims created a new calendar of festivals and rituals in Jerusalem. The city had a new spiritual geography based upon the sites of the Passion. What's that? The Via Dolorosa. So names and traditions were sometimes muddled. People got it wrong. But that didn't matter. What matters in Jerusalem is it's true if you believe it to be true. Like uh, George Costanza said, it's not a lie if you believe it. All right. So the details could be completely in error. But that was 300 years ago. And it's now the fourth century. So as long as you think it's true and you make a whole production with a, with a, with a brochure of the pamphlet for the pilgrims, they'll buy into it, you know, lock, stock and barrel. The church of the Holy Sepulchre. Was yes. set up because of Helena. Yes, point? yes. Although it, the, what what we know of it now was built later because there was a fire with with the uh, with the Persian conquest that basically destroyed the building and had to be rebuilt. Now, were pilgrims still locked in overnight in the church at that time? I don't think so. Oh. I don't think so. So relics emerged at this time. What kind of relics? I, I'm talking fake relics, of course. 
Solomon's ring. David's horn for anointing for, for the anointing oil. Jesus's crown of thorns or the lance that killed him. All sorts of things related to Davidic monarchs and the life of the founder of Christianity will be uh, you know, uncovered, not necessarily sold, but used to attract attention to win over the pilgrims and their money that follows. Now, while Jerome didn't like hanging out in Jerusalem, he did enjoy an annual trip to watch the Jews cry over the temple from the Mount of Olives. The <laughs> Jews could no longer cry over their temple on Tisha B'Av on the Temple Mount itself. They could only get across the valley in the Mount of Olives and look you know, down onto uh, the, the, the ruins. And there's a famous story in the writings of, of Jerome where the Jews are, are davening Tishabov and lamenting their fate. And some Roman officer decides to shoo them away. Like, You've had enough. Go away. And they have to pay a couple of shekels out of their pocket to be allowed to stay a little while longer to cry a few more tears. And Jerome sees this as the ultimate vindication of Christianity, that here we have our glorious shrines, and you folks are desperate just to, you have to pay a couple of dollars to, to cry over, a, over, over a, a, a dead sanctuary. Okay. Well, in 438, Emperor Theodosius II's wife, Empress Eudochia, arrived in Jerusalem and relaxed some of the laws against the Jews. So she's not a philo-Semite necessarily, but she's relaxing the laws. Unfortunately, at the same time that she arrived, there was a synagogue-burning ascetic, Barsum of Nisibis, who also arrived as well. And he wants to burn every shul he can find and kill or convert every Jew he can find. The Jews begged Eudochia for greater access to the Temple Mount, and she allowed them to worship there on pilgrimage festivals. So for Sukkot in the year 439, Jews went to Harabayit. They didn't do Korbanot necessarily, but they went to Davin. There was no question at that time about going to Harabayit. Not at all. Not at all. No. Monks were, uh, were street fighting fanatics who ruined the peace of Jerusalem. And the monks become an increasingly menacing presence in Yerushalayim in the 5th century. Barsama murdered Jews and destroyed synagogues. The Jews fought back. The Jews appealed to the Empress to punish the Christian offenders. But then Barsama threatened to kill the, the, the Empress herself. When that happened, she backed down. Then an earthquake spread fear, another earthquake. And Barsama regarded that as, as vindication that he was right and the Empress was wrong. So he declared victory and the murderers were freed. Eudochia came back in the 440s as Empress of Jerusalem in her own right. She had a falling out with her husband, and she came back as, her, as the queen. She built the first walls around the city since the days of Titus, and these walls did enclose Mount Zion and the city of David. So areas which are not enclosed by the Suleiman walls of the, of the 1500s were enclosed in this wall of the, of the 5th century. The, uh, the Diophysites and the Monophysites who argued over the substance of Jesus, whether he was fully divine, partially divine, fought in Jerusalem like soccer hooligans, ruining the peace of the town all throughout that century. Now let's go to Justinian in the 6th century. Justinian was bad news for the Jews, very bad news. He demoted Judaism to a less than a permitted religion, which meant that you could be persecuted for just mitzvah observance. Didn't always happen, but Judaism was no longer illicit or lawful religion. He banned Passover if it fell after Easter. He turned synagogues into churches, forcibly converted many Jews, and commandeered Jewish history for his own purposes. He and his wife, Theodora, built the Nia, which doesn't exist anymore. It was the new church of St. Mary of Mother of God. It was huge, 
400 feet long, 187 feet tall, and walls that were 16 feet thick. But it didn't last very long. It was destroyed during the Islamic conquest. So it was on the southeastern slope of Mount Zion, facing away from the Temple Mount. The goal was to overshadow Maharamoria, but that's not the focus of Jerusalem anymore, but rather this massive church on the western hilltop is the new focus of Jerusalem. He also supposedly found the menorah from the from temple days and placed it in the new church. I'm not really sure if that actually happened. I don't, I don't know if he knew where the menorah was, but there are claims, and Montefiore in his book on the history of Jerusalem claims that he the, the, the true menorah was in the Nia church. The city was set up to host thousands of pilgrims, and there were hostels that had 3,000 beds. The goal was bring them in, bring them in, tourist money, make Jerusalem an, att- an attraction. Fine. In the early 7th century, Jerusalem would experience a 25-year period of utter chaos when the city changed hands several times, dominated variously by four different religions, Zoroastrians, Jews, Muslims, and Christians. The Eastern Roman Empire, including Jerusalem, was conquered by the Persian army led by Shah Baraz, otherwise known as the, the Royal Boar. He was a Kavilda Chaya, the Royal Boar. He was the, the general of the Shah. The Shah was Khusra II. So in the year 614, this conquest happens. The Byzantines lose, the Persians win. The Shah was Zoroastrian. However, he was a tolerant Zoroastrian, as opposed to some of the very intolerant Zoroastrians who had been around in the 3rd century and were, were messing around with the Babylonian Jews in the days of the, of the Babli. But um, he was tolerant and his wife was a Christian. He didn't force her to convert to his own religion. So Jerusalem was under siege for 20 days. And the royal boar destroyed, destroyed the churches on the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane, which is outside the city. And during the siege, he was at, at liberty to pummel and destroy whatever was outside the city walls. On May 21st, 614, the city fell to the Persian army. The Jews fought in that army, and they were happy to defeat the hated Byzantines. Remember, the Byzantines had persecuted Jews and and, and knocked Judaism down a few pegs. So they were very happy that the Persians would defeat the Christians. In three days, thousands of Christians were massacred, and major churches were all set ablaze, including the Nia and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. After almost 600 years, after Titus destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, Jews were given control of the city. Can you believe that? Jews were in control of the city. Well, when I say Jews, which cabal of Jews are going to be in control? The rats of rabbis? No. A shadowy figure named Nehemiah was the leader of the Jewish political party. And he perpetrated a massacre of Christians at the Mamila pool. So today you can go shopping and go to Cafe Rimon there. But in the old days, there was a, it was a pool. It was a, a, a body of water. And it was convert or die, convert or die. So some Christians, including some monks, converted to Judaism to spare their own, their own lives. However, a great many were killed. Uh, the, in the Christian retelling of the story, the numbers are in, inflated to astronomical numbers of like 90,000, but there's no way it was at all anywhere close to that. Okay, we don't know for certain, but the jubilant Jews, 
may have restored sacrificial worship. So this would have been the third time post-Titus where the, there may have been some uh, move towards <laughs> Avodada Korbanot. But the Persians realized they made a mistake. What was their mistake? The mistake was giving control of the city to Jews. And why is it such a mistake? Because the Jews, demographically, are a small bunch. There are far more Christians than there are Jews. And you need to eventually develop some kind of political stability. And if you have the, a, a tiny fringe you know, minority of Jews governing the Christians and persecuting them on religious grounds, that's not a recipe for uh, good governance or stability. So the Persians decided to give control of the city back over to the Christians in 617 after three years under Jewish rule. Nehemiah resisted and was executed. Goodbye, Nehemiah. But the city never regained the Christian magnificence that it had under Constantine or Justinian. The, the, the devastation that was wrought by the Persian conquest was too difficult to, uh, to undo. Okay. Well, in the year 630, Heraclius, the new emperor, expelled the Jews of Jerusalem and then forcibly converted people who were living in the, in the vicinity of Jerusalem. He headed back to Constantinople, thinking there was nothing to fear in Palestine. He was wrong. The Muslims are coming. So now up until this point, we've had a Christian control, Zoroastrian control, and brief Jewish control. We're going to get now to the Muslim control. <laughs> so in the 15 minutes we have left, I want to cover Muhammad, and then the next generation, Omar. So Muhammad learned to venerate Jerusalem as one of the noblest sanctuaries. Noblest sanctuaries. He had his quote-unquote night journey to the furthest sanctuary, and there ascended a ladder to where? To heaven. Okay. Where was that furthest sanctuary? So the, no, so, so the earliest iterations of the story do not identify what that furthest sanctuary is. However, in Islamic lore for the last 1,300 years, everybody assumes it's Jerusalem. That uh, Al-Barak Danki was by the Kotel, and he goes up to the Tarabayat, and then he goes from there to Shemayim. So that's the, the, the Islamic story connecting Muhammad to Jerusalem. Did it ever really happen? Of course not. Didn't happen. But Muhammad did appreciate the significance of Jerusalem. Um, why? Let's find out. So while he was in Medina, surrounded by Jewish tribes, Muhammad adopted Jerusalem as the first Qibla, or direction of prayer. Yadavan towards Jerusalem, just like the Mishnah says you should. Okay, When the Jews later resisted Muhammad's religious message, and resisted his political control, both things. They didn't want his religion, they didn't want his dominance, political dominance. He changed the Qibla to Mecca. He accused the Jews of sinning, and that God punished them with the destruction of their temple, thus making Jerusalem an unacceptable Qibla. Meaning, first he said, yeah, yeah, we'll pray in this direction. And then he changes his tune and says, no, no, we're not going to pray in that direction, because actually that's bad, that the Jews did something wrong, and they, they justifiably had their temple destroyed. For mitnei chataino galinim yaretzenu, you know they did they, they did wrong. What was the significance of Mecca to be chosen? So Mecca was a, a religious, uh, uh, a place of religious significance for pre-Islamic Arabia, 
you know, there was the Kaaba, which was venerated as some kind of a rock from that came an asteroid down from, from Shemayim. So their connection to Yishmael develops a little bit later on. Um, but, but initially, Mecca was a place of religious pilgrimage, but for, pag- for pagan pre-Islamic uh, Arabs. It was, a, it was co-opted in a, in a religion which is borrowing from Christianity, borrowing from Judaism, and borrowing from indigenous Arabian culture. Put it all together, you have Islam. Okay, yeah. Well, my feeling is that Luther, when he wanted to befriend the Jews... Correct, the correct. The, the, the rejection... All right, so the rejection by the Jews of some prophetic figure or uh, re- reformist figure... Will go. Will will produce um, a shift between from cozy relationship to real antagonism. All right, fine. Now, uh, during the Muslim conquest, Jerusalem held out under the authority of the patriarch Sophronius. So remember, the Christians are still there. The six thirty, six thirty six, six thirty seven, six thirty eight, and the godless Saracens are on the march. The godless Saracens. That's how the Patriarch of Jerusalem referred to the Islamic hordes coming out of Arabia and attacking civilization in Palestine. So the Muslims converge on Ilya. Ilya. Not Ilya, A-E-L-I-A, but Ilya, I-L-Y-A, is the Islamic or the Arabic pronunciation of the Roman Ilya, meaning Jerusalem. There was a negotiated surrender. It was not uh, you know, to the last man standing. It was not to the death. It was a negotiated surrender. The Muslims were okay with having a religiously mixed population in the city. Fellow monotheists who were willing to accept dhimmi status and pay the jizya tax of submission could receive religious toleration, including in Jerusalem. So Sophronius presented Omar with the keys to the city. Arab armies had no technical advantage, but were fanatically motivated. So they were going to win because they had the you know, the mysterious nefesh, the zeal, the, the Hitler havut, to get it done. It's not as though they had any mechanical advantage, or te- you know, technological advantage. They didn't have better weapons. Omar wanted to go immediately to the Temple of David, because David was an important person in early Islamic thought. That David was uh, the great yeah. monarch, okay? So he found a dung heap made so deliberately by the Christians to spite the Jews. And he thought this was terrible. Omar wanted to see the Holy of Holies. Who, other, who else wanted to see the Holy of Holies? Antiochus, Pompey, uh, Titus. Over the years, many heathen generals wanted to go into the Holy of Holies. Well, the earlier figures could do it because the temple was still standing. Now there's no temple, but he wants the site of the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the location, even if there's no building there. So a Jewish convert agreed to show Omar the foundation stone, the Evan Shtia, you know, the, the, the site of the Holy of Holies, on condition that Omar preserve the wall. What wall are we talking about? Was it the Western Wall, the Kotel Maravi? Maybe, we're not entirely sure. But the, the legend has it that the deal was struck was you'll preserve the, the wall if I show you the, the, the Evan Shtia. Okay, fine. So Omar builds a mosque roughly where the Al-Aqsa Mosque would later be built, which is why it's sometimes known as the Mosque of Omar, because there was a Mosque of Omar on that spot on the southern end of the Temple Mount Plaza 
um, which would later be replaced by another mosque, the Al-Aqsa, built by his successors. He did, he did so to make the Muslims the legitimate heirs of Jewish sanctity and thereby outflank the Christians. It's a brilliant move. Think of it this way. The Christians made a blunder, a toast. What was their blunder? They tried to get the focus, the, the visual focus of Jerusalem to be not Harabite, but the site of the Passion, Holy Sepulcher. Move it over geographically a kilometer or two. But where is the real source of Kedusha? In the Ur religion, the mother religion, Judaism. So the holiest of places is always going to be the Temple Mount, nowhere else. Islam wants to be the, the, you know, the true daughter religion, the successor religion that will put aside, cast aside the mother religion and, and totally kick to the corner the competitor daughter religion. So Omar figures, ah, the Christians were stupid. They built their thing over there. I'll build, build it on the real holy site. We'll clear away the rubble from the dung and we'll make a nice mosque here. Okay. There was a surprising amount of mingling um, between peoples of all three faiths in the century after the Islamic conquest of Jerusalem. So we're talking from 638, let's say until the, to about 715. Muslims prayed, probably prayed, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre before arrangements were made on the Temple Mount. This is, this is a disputed point. There's another version of the story that says that they, they, they refused to pray there in a Christian place because they said to the, to, the ch- to the church fathers, if we daven in Islamic fashion in your church, we have to turn it into a mosque. But most likely that's, that's a myth. Really, they did pray in the church. The Jews welcomed the Islamic conquest after centuries of Byzantine oppression. So just like the Jews were in favor of the Persian conquest in 614, Jews were in favor of the Islamic conquest in 638. The commander of the believers, meaning the, the Muslim leader, not only invited the Jews to maintain the Temple Mount as custodians, but also to pray there together with Muslims. So Jews were davening on Harabait together with Muslims in the 7th century. Omar invited the Gaon of, of Tiberia. The Gaon of Tiberia was like the Gaon of, 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 of Suram Pumbedita in Babylonia. So there was the Gaon of Tiberia, the rabbinic leader of the Jews of Eretz Israel. He was invited to, together with 70 families to move to Yerushalayim. They lived in an area south of the Temple Mount. Later forgeries or wishful Christian thinking claimed that Omar banned the Jews from the city of Jerusalem. However, that simply isn't true. Omar was quite tolerant on this front, and a Jewish community in the city grew to the size it had not been since the Churban. Okay, the the Kalakadisha de Yerushalayim, the earlier times, was a small little bunch of people. There never had been a a serious community of Jews in Yerushalayim until this point. Okay, so under Islamic rule, it will grow. Jerusalem was still an impoverished and plague-ridden town because of the Persian depredations even after the Islamic conquest. And it would remain overwhelmingly Christian for many years. It's an important point. Even though the Muslims are in control, who actually lives there? Christians and Jews and some Muslims. But it's predominantly a Christian town for the foreseeable future. So next week, we'll get to the uh, Abbasid, the the, the Umayyad period, the Abbasid period, the Fatimid period, up to the Crusades. And we'll see how does the city evolve with a Jewish presence, and that Jewish presence will be divided between rabbinites and Karaites, but also a whole lot of other people who aren't Jewish. Okay, any questions? The next class will be after the Yom Tovim. 
October 26th, I believe. Okay, so stay tuned, yeah. Mentioned that it was the Kava. What was the Kava? A stone? stone, yeah. Okay, so is there some parallel between that belief system and, and the Evan Hashtia? I don't think so. You know, I don't just, think so. They just, it just happens to be both stones. Yeah. All right, folks, a good night. A good yontif to one and all. Same to you. Thank all right. You.